This is a podcast for Journal of Applied Ecology, a British Ecological Society publication. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Applied in 5, where we discuss ecological research in an accessible, bite-sized format of around about 5 to 15 minutes. Today I'm joined by Mark Huxham to discuss the recently published paper, Where to Fish in the Forest? Tree characteristics and contiguous seagrass features predict mangrove forest quality for fishes and crustaceans. As always, you can find a link to the paper in the podcast description. Without further ado, let's get started. Could you tell us a bit about yourself and what your research interests are and how you came to study mangroves? Hi, well, my name's Mark Huxham. I'm Professor of Teaching and Research in Environmental Biology at Edinburgh Napier University. And I've been working in mangroves for more than 20 years now. My background is in estuarine ecology and particularly mud. Um, I've spent a lot of time in mud and I took a very deliberate decision um, just over 20 years ago now to try to do work that was important for people. Um, I realised that the, the theoretical ecology that I was that I'd done in my PhD and that I was pursuing up here in Scotland at the time. I was very interested in it, but not very many other people were. So I wanted to use what skills I had to to work in a habitat that really mattered to people and and mangroves in most of the places in the world really do matter to people for their their livelihoods. So it was a very deliberate decision for me. That's like a really nice, nice background, nice reasoning. Thank you. Well, I mean, they're fascinating places as well, so I can't claim to be entirely philanthropic about it, but they're, they're just really amazing ecosystems, especially from a Northern European perspective. They're, they're the completely crazy, exotic ecosystems, you know, forests that can grow in the sea and that are full of fish and, and crabs, but also birds and sometimes tigers and crocodiles and all sorts <laughs> of other amazing animals. So they're, 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 they're by far my favourite ecosystem and they just really mix up boundaries and and challenge a lot of our thinking about ecosystems. Yeah, yeah. I've learned a bit more about them, just more in relation to sea defences and things like that. But finding out much more in-depth things has been actually really interesting. And I think other people definitely find that interesting as well. So (laughs) how did this research come about? You know, how was the idea germinated? Why did you feel compelled to share this with the wider ecological community? Well, you mentioned, Lydia, about shoreline protection and mangroves, are they're almost embarrassingly useful ecosystems. So you're right about shoreline protection. There's really good evidence that they, they stop storm surges. Um, they're amazing stores for carbon. So in this particular site in Vanga, we have more than 1,500 tonnes of carbon per hectare. Oh, wow. That's something like seven to ten times what you'd find in a typical terrestrial forest. And they also, they're very important for fish. So this paper is focused on the fisheries function of mangroves and fish that includes crustaceans, so finfish and crustacea. And what we know is that based on many decades of research, that areas on on the whole, on average, bays and coastal areas with mangroves in the tropics tend to support more fish, more fisheries landing, uh, both shrimp and finfish, than areas without mangroves. So there's a kind of broad correlation. There's a lot of noise in that correlation, so it doesn't always work. And the functions, the reasons for that correlation are still 
interestingly debated and hotly debated in, in the literature. So we do know, for example, that probably some of those fish are hiding in the mangroves from their own predators, they're juvenile fish, small juvenile fish. Mm -hmm. And of course, they can't stay in the mangroves all the time. These are tidal systems. So they're moving in and out um, through a, a seascape, a mosaic of other habitats. And typically, which is the case at this site in southern Kenya, involving coral reefs and seagrass beds and then mangroves. So we've got a very complicated, integrated seascape ecosystem. All of that is helping to support fisheries, but in ways that we're not quite causally sure. Uh, we don't quite know how that happens. And given all the pressures on the mangroves and all the uses that they can have, we mentioned those ecosystem services earlier about protecting coastlines, but of course they're also used for extractive purposes people using them for firewood, for example, in this area, and, and timber and building materials, charcoal. So um, there's a lot of pressure on the forests. If we could figure out how to predict the areas of the forest that are most important for supporting fish, then that might allow us to zone them for management purposes. And in fact, the new legislation in Kenya and in many other countries is suggesting and requiring that local managers and that forestry departments zone these forests so that they can be used for, for, for different purposes, including possibly extractive purposes in the future. Mm. So the purpose of this work was really to attempt to try to understand two things. First of all, if we go to particular sites within the forest and do repeated fishing at the same sites, are we able to identify sites that are particularly good or particularly bad in their fisheries habitat function? Because there's so much variance in the data that we actually, we don't know if there, it, it could be statistical noise, a lot of the variance. So, you know, you go to a site one day and you find lots of fish and the next day you find very little. Um, so that was the first question. The second question was, if we can identify good and bad sites, are we able to find predictors that will help us to predict where those sites are in the future in other areas? It's really interesting. You can see that really strong applied focus coming through. Yeah, I mean, it's not true that they're ecosystems. These are socio-ecosystems. So certainly all the mangrove forests that I've worked in in, in Africa and, and in Asia are very intimately connected to and used by the local communities who rely very heavily on them for fisheries, but also all sorts of other functions. And in fact, their future survival depends almost entirely on how those local stewards interact with the ecosystem. And these people, of course, mostly have been living sustainably in these areas for millennia. Yeah. And if we're going to conserve these forests, we will usually need to support um, that local stewardship so that their, their survival depends on, on working well with people and having a strong applied focus as scientists working in those areas. Yeah. And I think it, it really shows how multidimensional they are. So to hear how much they interact, really, really interesting. They're very important for people and culturally as well. Um, in, along the Kenyan coast, there are all sorts of interesting shrines, for example, where people still pursue traditional uh, spiritual practices in the mangroves. And so there are all sorts of non-material services that they provide as well. Yeah, wow. I suppose going on from that point, where do you think the research should be directed towards next? Are there any sort of changes you'd hope to see come about from your research? I know you've kind of touched on that. Well, what we, what we discovered in this paper was, first of all, that yes, there is consistency in the fisheries that you find, in the fish within the forest. So one of the challenges in doing this work is that you can't fish using normal nets in a 
tangled mangrove forest. It's actually extremely logistically challenging to fish mm. inside mangrove forests. So most people in the past fish a little bit offshore in the bays. But of course, if you do that, you don't actually know whether the fish have been into the forest. They might just be close to the forest. They might just be using the seagrass that comes up to the, to, to the lower tidal fringe. So you have to take fish that have actually been in the forest. And to do that is, is challenging. And so the lead author here, Caroline Wangiro, did a great job of consistently sampling from 14 different sites for eight different periods across two years. And that, that was just a huge logistical challenge. I guess people, it's the case, isn't it, in all of our, our ecosystems as, a, as field ecologists, that all of our ecosystems present challenges which outsiders don't understand. But I, I would argue that mangroves are particularly challenging kind of places, great places, but particularly challenging places to work in. So just, just taking the samples was a major achievement, <laughs> Caroline. And what she showed was, yes, that there is consistency. We can identify good and bad sites. Mm. But perhaps typically for ecology, the, the message is not simple. So the sites that were good for fish on the whole were bad for shrimp and other crustaceans. The sites that were good for shrimp on the whole were not so good for fish. <laughs> and we can predict the key characteristics of those sites based on a mixture of what the forest looks like. So there's something called the complexity index, which measures the height of the trees and how dense they are and the number of species. And a higher complexity index tended to mean better habitat for shrimp. So shrimp quite like more mature forest, large spaces between the trees, lot plenty of open mud. On the other hand, fish tended to prefer dense, more juvenile uh, stands of trees. And the fish also were strongly correlated with uh, continuous areas of seagrass. Mm -hmm. So this is seagrass subtidal or, in, or low intertidal seagrass, whereas the, the, the shrimp tended to prefer more patchy seagrass. So we've got quite a complicated story, which can be summarized by, you know, what fish like shrimp on the whole don't and what shrimp like fish on the whole don't. And the message is, what, well, in fact, we can kind of zone the forest, but we're going to have to be really careful to maintain this whole complex interconnected seascape. And if we, for example, in restoration efforts, when we're, we're replanting and trying to restore mangroves, if we do that with single age or single species stands, we're likely to undermine some of those ecosystem services. Um, so clearly this particular large forest in southern Kenya is providing this rich fisheries mix, partly because it's a mosaic of different forest types and different types of seagrass as well. It's not just the forest, it's, it's the whole seascape. Mm. I suppose it's trying to balance this, this whole web of everything so interconnected and it's I spoke to a few people previously that, that mentioned with ecology, nothing's ever simple, nothing's ever sort of black and white. And I think that's a really good example of it. But I think that's also possibly what makes it so interesting. It does. And I guess we're in danger of, of the message being, well, just conserve everything. And we're not saying that there, there are clearly areas of the forest, which are, for example, upper intertidal areas of the forest, which may well be appropriate for some kinds of sustainable extraction. But certainly the the lower tidal fringe of the forest, if you want high fisheries productivity, at least at this site, you're going to have to maintain that, that kind of complex interconnected ecosystem. Yeah, no, definitely. On a very different note now, <laughs> are there any shout outs you'd like to give 
someone who particularly helped with the project, gave guidance, people you might have worked with in the field, anything like that, really? Yes, thank you. I'd, I'd like to thank, first of all, the Earthwatch Institute, who are a charity that takes volunteers, fund your science by bringing volunteers to your site. And I've had a long, very productive relationship with them. And, and, and they've supported this work over, over many years or related work, partly by sending those volunteers. And I've learned a lot from those people from all walks of life and many, many different countries. Um, it's a great way of doing science if you've got long-term projects and you've got data that can be collected by citizen science scientists. You, you learn a lot. So I'd like to thank them and, and support them. And they provided direct support for Caroline, the lead author. But the main shout here actually is for Caroline, Dr. Caroline Wangiru, the lead author of this paper, who very sadly died um, in December, uh, last December of, of cancer, much too young. So this paper is an important part of her legacy. And she was a very promising Kenyan scientist, only fairly recently graduated with her PhD, a huge amount yet to offer. And she'd already contributed a great deal, particularly for her community. She lived in a mangrove community herself, and she has you know, contributed a great deal to the community-based conservation efforts that we've been involved in in these areas of Kenya for, for the last two decades. So she's very sadly missed and, um, and, and her work's much appreciated. I'm really, really sorry to hear that. Yeah, I'm so pleased and proud on her behalf to, that we can publish this work in, in such a great journal. And that's, you know, personally, that's a great, that's a comfort to me. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. On a, well, slightly different note to kind of finish off, if you had to give one piece of advice to someone in your field, what would you give? What a great question. Reflecting on that moment where I, I did take a very deliberate decision, as I explained, to move into mangrove. So I had quite a lot of experience of working in coastal ecology and particularly muddy environments here in Scotland. And, you know, that was fine. I'm very interested. I still do much of that. You know, I wasn't going to win the Nobel Prize. I never had the, the intelligence to, for example, make massive new mathematical strides in food web theory that I was working on at the time. <laughs> and so I thought, well, I, I really want to, you know, do something long term that uses my skills and makes a difference in an applied sense. And to do that, I just had to reach out to people as somebody who'd never done any work in mangroves before. And, you know, that was a lovely experience. So, of course, people might choose not to respond to you. But my advice to particularly younger colleagues and people starting out is, you know, don't be afraid to ask. We're still fortunate enough in science to work in a community where there are lots of people out there who are genuinely looking for opportunities to collaborate and, and to work together. And you might think that, you, you know, your skills can't match up. But, but probably they will, <laughs> depending on what you want to do. So we all bring different skills. And it's just great to, I suppose, coming back to this understanding of mangroves as these very complicated socioeconomic and economic uh, ecological systems. You just need lots of people involved to get a handle on them. You know, we need to work with anthropologists and economists and sociologists and hydrologists and all sorts of interesting people. So it's a great opportunity. It might mean that you have to move a bit more slowly, um, but my advice would be don't be afraid to to reach out and see what happens. Yeah, no, I, that's really nice. It links to this, this notion that it doesn't all have to be one person just for themselves. Collaboration is a really nice way to go about things. And like you said, it's ecologist, you can't be an expert in every single thing. 
So when you can actually work with people who have different specialities and bring that all together, I think that makes a really good piece of work. <laughs> yeah, it's very rewarding. It, it, you have to move a bit more slowly, but you learn a lot and you might be able to have a have, make a difference. Certainly the model of the lone ecologist, you know, publishing papers, particularly on a country like Kenya and expecting some manager to read those papers and somehow do something, that model doesn't work very well um, for, for changing the world and changing policy. So, you know, we, we've got to do a little bit better than that and recognise the constraints of, you know, our colleagues in policy and, and, and of people in these areas. And often there is no manager, you know, there are there is no resource. There's we, We've got to go beyond that model as scientists. Yeah. And on that note, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Lydia. It's been, been nice to speak with you. <laughs>